In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your program out, worship program out in front of you, and go to the gospel account that we have. It's a historical account, an eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did. We find ourselves dropped in the middle of a confrontation. And get us up to speed. Let's fill in what this is all about. This is from the sixth chapter of John, and we've been talking about it for really the last couple of Sundays. It's the occasion of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Jesus has been in the north country of the Galilee, mainly the pagan part of land of Israel at that time, Galilee of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as it was called back at that point. Jesus has appeared on the scene and remarkable one-off things are happening. People are being healed from diseases. People who couldn't see are seeing. Uh, people are witnessing these amazing things that Jesus is doing. And he's also saying amazing things about himself, astonishing things. And the crowds begin to swell. And right before this confrontation that we have this morning in front of us, Jesus has, because of so much going on, and that he, he and his disciples uh, barely have time to sleep, They've been working constantly, constantly, constantly. Jesus says, let's withdraw to a, a place and get away from folks. Uh, but, of course, the crowds hear about it, and they anticipate, and they flock to where they're going. And once they get there, they find that there's thousands of people there. Now, it, I understand it says the feeding of the 5,000. You'll understand in the scriptural account it says 5,000. The number was 5,000 men. That is a shorthand for telling you in the ancient Near East at that time, they counted what we would say 5,000 men. That really means 5,000 heads of households, okay? So it wasn't just 5,000 that greeted them there. It was closer to 10,000, okay? Unbelievable crowds out of this area. You know, if you've been to the North Galilee, you can see the hillsides on which multiple thousands can gather, and they did. And you know what happened? Incredibly, Jesus takes two small barley loaves and a couple of fish, he blesses it, breaks it, and feeds the entire crowd. And 12 baskets are left over from this feeding. Now, as you might imagine, that would get your attention. And it caused a big, big stir. John reports to us that the people swelled after Jesus and were going to take him forcibly and make him a king. Why? Well, you see, this was a sign not just that everybody got something to eat, but this was a sign that someone was here, a supernatural person that was promised for centuries, someone who was going to come, who was basically like the second Moses, only a greater Moses, who was, and that would be one of the signs he was going to miraculously feed his people. Jesus does this, and they say, this must be that one. This must be that prophet who was to come. Moses predicted it said, there is going to be a prophet of right to come after me. You must listen to him. These promises are coming true. And there's incredible excitement. And they're also thinking, too, that this was a sign of the king that was supposed to come and finally fulfill all the promises and right all the wrongs and reverse all the things that had gone wrong with Israel's history. As you know, they've been captive, <coughs> bouncing back between rival huge nations, cruelly taken away into exile, back again into exile, back so expectations were extremely high. Now into that steps Jesus. We have what we have in front of us. And it is shocking. It is an in-your-face confrontation to people. Why? 
I'm going to list the why in three ways, okay? Hopefully that we can understand it better. They come to him, and they are, as I said, full of expectations. But what they want is another miracle. They say, you did something amazing. Do it again. Do it again. We want to see this. You did it over there for them. Now prove it. Show us. Show us again. Show us again. And notice Jesus doesn't go along with it. He does not comply. He refuses to do this. Why? Let's look at it under three headings. He claims in this miraculous feeding and in what he says in response that he is true actual bread for the entire world. Bread, one, for the mind. Bread for the mind. Something that your minds can chew and feed on. Something that challenges you. Presents you with something that you've got to take in and digest. Bread for the mind. Two, bread for the body. And what I mean by bread for the body is this world as it really is, reality. He's bread for this world that we find ourselves in, this reality that you and I deal with every day, the world as it is. He's also bread for the soul because he claimed that if you took him into you, if you fed on him, and you know, we're talking metaphorically, <coughs> he's, it, bread is a picture. He says, I'm bread. He also said, I'm the door, but it doesn't mean he's got a, a handle and splinter, okay? You know that. I, mean, I know I don't have to explain it. He's bread for the soul. You take him in, he says, you will have eternal life. All that comes to me and feeds on me, you'll have eternal life. So bread for the mind, bread for the body, bread for the soul. But it's confrontational and it's offensive. He may have been the one who actually came, but he wasn't the one that they expected. He confounded their expectations. Let me, let me show you. This continued long after he left this earth. Do you know in the, in the empire of Rome, the first Christian, we know this, there were two accusations about the early Christian. You may not be aware of this, but there were these accusations about the first Christians to come into the empire. They called them two things. One, they called them cannibals. Kay mentioned this a couple weeks ago. She set the stage for us so well. They were called cannibals by the people in the empire. Why? Well, you can see reading. If you read, have a stiff reading and literalistic reading of this, you say, well, what do you mean eating somebody's body and drinking somebody's wood? So they were cannibals. But also, and I find this even more interesting, early Christians were called atheists. Isn't that something? How did they deserve the title atheist? Well, imagine somebody from the empire, a pagan in the empire, coming up to a new Christian and says, well, I, you know, I hear this new religion that you're talking. How about tell me about this? Um, <clears throat> sacrifices. Uh, I mean, I guess you don't, do you sacrifice the same things that we do to the gods? And he said, no, 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 we don't do sacrifice. You don't do sacrifice? No, no, no. Jesus, he is our sacrifice. Okay, well, all right, help me. You don't do sacrifices, but I mean, you do, do you go to the, where, where's your temple? Well, we don't have a temple. You don't have a, no, um, Jesus is our, Jesus is our temple. He's the place. And so it went on and on because Rome had plenty of gods and temples and altars and sacrifices and all that stuff, but the Christians weren't, all, weren't about that at all. And so they called them atheists. It's offensive to the modern, to, to, to modern ears today, postmodern ears, whatever you call our cultural moment. It's offensive to us today. <coughs> but I want you to understand that it's ju it was just offensive to the ancient people who came in contact with Jesus as it is to any of us today. You might think, well, I got insurmountable arguments and I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by this. I, I can't possibly believe in all this stuff. It's, uh, you know, religion and God is a human construct. We come up with it just to help us through the dark times. Well, no, um, I'm not letting you get off that easy. And Jesus didn't let us get off that easy either. But let's talk of these three things. He says he's bread for the mind. He confronts you and me just as he confronted them back then with himself. And he says hit evidence for who he is and what he's doing. The evidence is himself, not his miracles. Jesus told the people, no, 
this, I did these things so you'll come to me. I'm not here to just provide you a meal ticket. I know you're going to be hungry tomorrow. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to draw you, come to me. Because if you are with me and you know me, there's a way that you can live in which you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. So it's bread for the mind. And if the minds of today are just as hungry and just as starving and, and don't understand Jesus' claims any more than they did. And let, let, me, let me sort of, I, I'm going to paint with a broad brush, excuse me, but I know this sort of the, the spirit of our age that, that seems to be prevalent, it's sort of like the air we breathe, is this, um, I, let's say, secularist air. And what do I mean by secular? I, basically, the, the idea that this world is all that there is. Okay, there's no God. This world is here. It's by chance. It's accident. There's no meaning in it. I mean, whatever meaning you bring to it is whatever meaning's there. There's nothing after life. It's just here we are, and then it's done. That's the air that we breathe. And I might add, and it's true, it's the air that's being more and more forced on us for all kinds of reasons. We can't go into it. But the miracles, today we look at them and say a couple of things. From this worldview, say that you, you don't believe in anything, that it's just total randomness, total everything. Well, then... Uh, you don't even get to the point where you say that miracles violate or suspend the laws of nature because you don't believe in the laws of nature. Well, you think you got a great argument, but if that's so, if it's just all chaos, then if there are no laws, then what makes this impossible? Because anything could happen in that worldview. Anything can and will happen. So how does that rule out miracles? It doesn't. But then if you're secularist and you say, wait a minute, it this, this suspends and violates the laws of nature. Miracles cannot happen. A priori, it doesn't happen. Miracles do not happen. What do you say about that? We'll get to that in a minute. Keep that in mind. You might just finally just dismiss it all and say, look, miracles, Jesus, miracles, they were made up anyway. Um, they were really to prove, they're like a fable to prove some moral point. We've gone, we, we're beyond that now. And, and, and come on, miracles don't prove anything. You can prove anything. I'd like you to understand this morning, based on Jesus' reaction to man to it, I do this miracle again. Jesus, you may be shocked, but Jesus basically agrees. Miracles are not primarily proofs. Why do I say that? Because if they were, look at the miracles Jesus actually did, the ones that are recorded in the Scripture, the ones he actually did. If proofs were if proofs were the primary reason, shows of power, things to make you believe, he could have done far better miracles than the ones he did. Have you thought about that? I mean, he could have just lifted himself. They said, prove to us you're the son of God. Here's what I, I would have just, I would have levitated. I would have maybe flown toward Rome. I would have, I would have hovered over the Colosseum. I mean, in front of Russell Crowe and, and everybody. <laughs> and the gladiators come out and the lions, and I would have touched down, and just in touching down, I mean, Russell's throwing the spears and knocking people down. I would have just, you know, raised my hands, and the lions immediately would, would fall to the ground, and everybody would run out. It would it'd be a great show. And that's only one. I mean, he could have done that, couldn't he? If he has all power, couldn't he have done that? Theoretically. But he doesn't agree that miracles are about proof. You see, shows of force and displays of naked power pander to your craving and my craving. They pander to us, and he's not going to pander. He says, don't just look at the miracle. Look at me. I am the miracle right in front of you. Look at my life, what I do, what I say, how I live. The miracles that I do point to me. So bread for the mind challenges your assumptions, challenges your question, maybe creates doubt for some of your doubts. Okay, It's also bread for reality, bread for the body, bread for the real world, how to deal with the real world and the conditions we endure as human beings. See, the miracles that Jesus did 
show that he came to deal with suffering, really deal with it. All his miracles deal with some form of human suffering. He feeds hungry people who are far away from home. They can't take care of themselves or their families. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They have no leadership. He deals with them, feeds them. He gathers them to himself. He teaches. He heals sick people. He opens blind people's eyes. He restores limbs that don't work. He takes away paralysis. He restores people alienated by diseased bodies, but also he takes care of people alienated from God and from each other by the, that have diseased minds. He restores people to mental health. He wars against death. Those are what all his miracles are about. All this, and we still, to this day, 2018, we rail at him different ways. All of us do in some way. I don't care if you're a believer or not. We all, if you go through life long enough, at least inside you're going to be shaking your fist at some point saying, why, if God is real, if he really is loving, he's really all-powerful, why does he allow evil and suffering? And you look for answers, and we look everywhere today, but Christianity, I mean, again, get that. We're looking at all kinds of things. In the world's religions, in the world's philosophies, they talk in circles, saying in one moment that this world that, was, that we find in front of us is simply chaotic. It's the collateral damage of gods that fighting each other. And in the next moment, they say that, well, it, it never should have been, but for random chance, it just has appeared. There's no meaning, there's nothing to it, but it's just here and we're stuck with the absurd. And others say, well, it seems to be here, but it's an illusion. It doesn't really exist. Can I really, can you prove to me that I'm not just a projection of your mind right now? You're projecting me talking to you, and I'm projecting, so I just have some urgent need to talk to a lot of people. Am, am, I, am I just projecting this church in here this morning and all that? Maybe. I don't think so. So what if we actually stoop to turn to Christianity? What do Christians say about this? Do they know fully why God allows all that has been allowed and why it continues to go on? Christians can't say everything. There is a mystery that won't be revealed to us until we know. I can't, you know, I can't take in what that answer might be. I, I can't process it. I, can, I can't even fix my toast. But Christians say something to the world from a unique vantage point, and they say something that is very important. What is it? They say that God, the creator of this world, is dead set against evil and suffering. And what is the proof? Look at the miracles recorded in the Bible. None were tricks to sway people's fleeting wants and emotions, but were all frontal assaults against injustice and decay and death. Do you recall when John the Baptist sent a message when he was in prison? He sends a message to Jesus. He says, are you, are you the one we've looked for for all these years, or do we look for someone else? You remember that? Do you remember Jesus' answer to John? Go and tell John blind see, deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news announced to them, the poor are being taken care of. You see, physical, spiritual, social alienation, Jesus came against it all. And so we get to this thing about his miracles. We might think of them as, well, I guess they're suspensions of the natural order. They're, they're violations of the natural order, and that just doesn't happen. But that's just telling us that we don't understand what his miracles are about. Are about. If you really look at them, and I want you to think 
about this for a minute. It's important. important. This is the vantage point that Christians bring to all this. Jesus' miracles are not suspensions of the natural order. They are restoration of the natural order. Have you ever thought of it? There's a prominent theologian which proves that all theologians aren't to be just run away from. There's lots of good, grounded stuff that comes to theologians. One that I've studied wrote this. Jesus' healings. His miracles are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. I don't know about you, but that rings true to me about what reality. God designed a world without death or disease or alienation or suffering. Go back to the beginning of the Bible to find it. We're not there anymore. Something catastrophic has happened, and reality is warped and diseased, and it decays, it runs down. And that's something that the secularists need to address. And maybe you need to address having breathed the air of it, of secularism for so long as we do and we will tomorrow. You know, secularists are characterized by saying that there is no God and that this world is all that there is. And coupled with that, there is an outrage against evil and suffering and just. And folks, that doesn't make sense. If there is no God and the world is all that there is, how can we be outraged against things that are absolutely natural? What is decay? What's disease? What's death? Everything's running down, wearing out. Well, that's natural. And when you see the strong destroying the weak, what is that? It's evolution. It's purely natural. So if that's so, why are you outraged? Why do you call something terrible that happened? Why do you do it? A fellow named Stephen Turner wrote a thing called Creed, which is wonderful. I, I commend it to you. You can find it on the web. Stephen Turner, Creed. He writes a modern or postmodern creed that the seculars follow. And he adds this postscript. He says, and when you see riots in the street, people looting, snipers <coughs> killing 10 or 12 or 40 or how many people, he says, if chance is the father of all flesh, then disaster is rainbow in the sky. And when you see all these things happening, it is but the sound of man worshiping. If we really are self-made creatures, what horrors, what misery, and why are we outraged by it if it's natural, if we're evolving? You see, deep down, as Colonel Jessup in that movie of men, Jack Nichols, anybody remember that? Colonel Jessup? Deep down, as Colonel Jessup puts it, deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You and I know something. You and I know that he, the truth is we can't handle the truth. And God knows this. He's done something about it that has and will change everything. Jesus assures us that he bred for this world. He came against decay, disease, and death. He promises that in him he's wiping it out. And he is in along the way to creating a new heavens and a new earth free of all this. Has it come? No. Has it come in part only? Do we look for it still? Yes. Do we groan? Yes. Do we doubt? Do we rail? Yes. But he understands. He understands. He assures us that he's bread for our souls, food that we can and must eat to live so that even death, even when death comes, it will only make us greater, eternally, radiantly alive in a new world because he has made it possible. You see, he is the ultimate power. He is the ultimate one. He's full of all power and strength, but he is also because he used this term for himself, I am the bread of the world. I am the bread of life. Bread, if you take the metaphor for what it is, he's also saying he's the broken person. Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of our sorrows and grief. He willingly took on the misery and penalty of our sin-sick souls with him, nailed them to the cross with him. He says he's the bread of life and he promises this, which means not only that he can quench our deep hunger and thirst, 
a new heaven and new earth where there is no parting, no saying goodbye, no tears, no eat, no sorrow. He is the broken one. Bread must break into pieces. If the bread of life doesn't break apart, then we'll eternally. And on the cross, that's our vantage point. That's the Christian's vantage point. On the cross, we see him literally pulled apart, torn from limb from limb, broken open for us. It's real food and drink. That's why he calls us to his table to freely eat and drink in pledge and anticipation of that great gathering, that unending banquet of rich food and drink, real food, real drink that awaits all who trust in him in the life of the world that's available to us now, only in part, but is to come in its fullness and inexpressible joy and glory in a new world without end. He sealed it. He guaranteed it by his life, death, and resurrection. Come drink.